the index looks at a well below two degree scenario, so a Paris scenario, and then puts a, a valuation on different companies around the world as if the future had already happened. And I think that's a really interesting concept because then you can start to see what the valuations of a company would be on the back of a Paris agreement. So it almost brings the future into today. And you can start allocating capital as if the future had already happened. And it's by bringing the future into today that we can start to manifest the future that we want. Welcome to the Inner Green Deal podcast, the podcast for sustainable, compassionate leadership. You just heard Matt Scott. He's Senior Director of the Climate and Resilience Hub at Willis Towers Watson, a multinational risk management provider and consultancy where he helps to manage risk and navigate opportunities of a low-carbon, resilient economy. Matt has been with the Bank of England's Climate Hub for eight years, holds a Stanford MBA, and also teaches entrepreneurship and innovation on executive management programs at Oxford's Said Business School. Together with him, we will explore the changing risk landscape due to climate change and the role of the financial system, mindfulness, and stewardship in moving towards a sustainable economy. I'm your host, Tom Weimann, and I'm glad that you're with us to discover your inner green deal. Matt and I recorded our conversation in November of 2021. We finished by briefly reflecting on our dialogue. As this episode is covering a lot of ground, we thought it would be nice to share with you Matt's brief summary of what you can expect within the next 40 minutes. This sort of sense of the need for system leadership and stewardship. I think is coming out of this conversation, I think is something that has really landed with me. And I think amplifying that I think is really important. So there's the notion of agency that we can all be stewards and we can all work to create a, a fairer system. And I think as you think about this through a sort of system lens to sort of bring the attention to this notion of the financial system becoming a steward of the economy, transition and then system positive companies and obviously some of the ex exciting things that are, that are happening um, around this sort of sense of moving just from self to the systemic and the way that mindfulness can play into that so i think that's actually something that is landing with me in terms of almost thinking through this sort of the move from self to systemic at the sort of individual level and how that is then supporting even new thinking around economics, for instance, at different layers from sort of system positive companies to finance stewarding the transition to new economic thinking, taking a system lens to the, the power of mindfulness to help us not only think about ourselves but also think about the system. There's quite a lot of innovative things happening to try and bring this system lens and that sort of shift from being part of the problem to part of the solution. As we now heard Matt reflect on what to expect from this conversation, let's jump right into it and start from the beginning. First of all, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Great, great to be here. I'm, I'm glad that you're here this morning. And my first question is, what would be beautiful to get across? What, what is something that is dear to you, which you would love to, to get across to other people listening to us today? I think one is just how important it is that we take a, an ambitious and considered response to the climate crisis that is in front of us and also 
in doing that, how much we also appreciate the progress that we are making. I know sometimes it can be uh, a challenging time and a frustrating time, particularly as you develop a deeper awareness of just quite how significant and structural the changes are that are needed to get us towards a net zero and climate resilient economy. And I think to take away the fact that there are great things happening and that we can take confidence from some of the things that are happening, whilst obviously there's still a huge amount to do. And the fact that we we all have we all have agency over making those changes happen. I think if people were taking away that, then that would be a great outcome for me because I think it will require collective effort from from everybody to deal with the challenge that is now ahead, but also one that can really bring people together. Uh, in a way that perhaps we've not come together before as nations and as people. So I think there's there's also excitement as well as a challenge and frustration. Diane Dane said that, you know, ch changing minds and hearts towards a positive vision of not just fainting and, and exhaustion of, of what is ahead of us, but actually there's a, there's a positive future possible as well if, if we change our minds and hearts. Exactly. And I think to to appreciate that positive future is also already being built. We're not starting uh, from scratch. You know, there's, uh, I think, tremendous things that have happened over the last uh, decade or so. And I think we are at this point where there is such a much broader level of awareness of the need to act and getting to an interesting time to now actually begin to focus our intention on, on the best way of acting that can make the biggest contribution. If you could, in your own words, say a little bit about Who are you and, and what are you currently passionate about? I'm really happy to do so. I'm a, I'm a recent father. Maybe I'll start there because that's something that's really important to me. So uh, I have a beautiful 12-week-old boy called Hugo. So that's a big part of my life. So I'm definitely a, a father and fortunate to have a, a, a beautiful partner as well. Definitely enjoying that new dimension to my life. I think... Um, My current role, I to switch more to the sort of professional side of things, is that I'm a senior director in the Climate and Resilience Hub of Willis Towers Watson. And there I help to help to integrate the work that Willis Towers Watson does across people, capital and risk to help our clients respond to climate change. And that's quite exciting to me because I think each three of those elements are such an important role to play in addressing the climate challenge that's in front of us. We need risks to be integrated. We need you know, capital to be reallocated and support the transition. And then we also need people to engage and uh, have the right uh, incentives and the right culture and the right and the right environment to be able to, to contribute to the challenge that we're facing. I've had I've had sort of three chapters uh, before that of quite a varied career. I guess climate has been something that's been central To, to most of those chapters. But initially, I actually started doing physics and worked in a science company near Oxford, which was a great experience. I think it's where I learned that while science is wonderful, there's a real need to then commercialize ideas and take ideas to market to have impact. So after working in an environmental science company for four or five years, I then, uh, along that theme of, of wanting to have impact and wanting to take ideas to market, I, I headed out to Silicon Valley And I had a real transformative experience doing an MBA at Stanford Business School, uh, where I met many wonderful people. And it was in my my final year at Stanford, I really discovered the the area of social entrepreneurship. And the challenge we were set as a set of students in our final year was the challenge of kerosene lighting. So at that point, 
like one and a half billion people lacking access to electricity. Our challenge was to how to solve that problem in a way that could really have a sustainable impact. So as you do in Silicon Valley, we, we started a company and I headed off to India and had a, a sort of social entrepreneurial chapter of my career looking to replace kerosene lighting with our mighty lighter solar powered lights but we brought the the solar lighting and the mighty light to close to about 100,000 people working in India it made me realize there was another barrier that I was facing in terms of trying to have an impact and that was how challenging it was to raise capital for a green company uh, and therefore my experience as an entrepreneur that got me intrigued with what I could do to help green the financial system and help solve that problem. So I spent uh, a year or two in impact investing but then had around about uh, a decade or so working at the Bank of England where I had the great pleasure of helping to establish the bank's climate work and lead the Bank of England's climate hub including uh, setting out a framework for climate risk around physical risks from climate, so storms and floods, the transition risks that can come from mispricing of carbon-intensive assets as the world decarbonizes, and then liability risks, so what happens when people who have suffered loss and damage from climate change look to hold those who they view responsible to account. I mean, in, in many ways, I think we can really look at what has happened in finance and, and particularly in the world of, of central banks as something that we can really celebrate. There's, uh, there's now a network of uh, 100 central banks working together through something called the Network for Greening the Financial System, which is quite remarkable, really. I think I remember going to, to a first meeting on climate change and financial regulation, probably only six or seven years ago, when uh, I was the only person from the central banking and financial regulatory community there at that point in time. So to see how quickly um, central banks, financial regulators have, I think, embraced this as a, as a core activity and the important work that continues to go on in that area is something that I think is, again, a great sign of progress. And I think we can perhaps talk more about the role of finance in addressing climate change as we go forward. Having done that work at the Bank of England, I then spent just short of 18 months or so in government, where I led the UK's green finance strategy. We find that Climate is really one of these cross-cutting issues that can really bring people together. So it was exciting to work with many colleagues across government and other financial regulators to, to try and pull together an integrated strategy in the UK just to see how much has changed and how mainstream climate now is within the financial system is something that we can we can appreciate, even though we're perhaps getting to the point now where there's important questions in terms of how do we channel that momentum in a way that makes the most amount of difference and shifts the economy as a whole towards net zero. You pointed out the role of the financial system and financial markets in having a big leverage on driving your economies towards the ability to sustain us. Big investment companies, pension funds, what's their take on the current situation and maybe also what has changed? There's definitely a, a much wider awareness of climate being a financial issue, both the risks and opportunities that it presents. For example, a few years ago, there was an initiative launched called the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, the idea that firms should be disclosing the risks and opportunities of climate change. That now is moving to a mandatory basis around the world. So many firms are disclosing 
the, the risks and opportunities that they see. We've also then seen, most notably, at the, at the Glasgow summits, a big movement towards net zero finance, effectively commitments to uh, decarbonise portfolios and therefore contribute towards the, the the broader transformation that we need in the real economy. There are also some important questions in terms of how we think about net zero for financial institutions. There's uh, both a movement towards sort of net zero finance that is focusing on decarbonizing individual portfolios. There's also this emerging conversation around what finance can do to support a resilient transition uh, to a net zero economy. Uh, something that I'm becoming really curious about is the need to recognize the climate challenge as a real systemic problem that lies at the you know, intersection of our climate systems, our energy systems, and our economy. Just making sure that as we do move from this phase of having really widespread awareness now of the climate issue, that we set an intention that really helps to shift the economy as a whole towards net zero as opposed to individual portfolios. Something I've, I'm becoming, I think, increasingly curious about is the need to take this systems view to solving this systemic challenge. That, that can be somewhat of a challenge if we look at trying to solve a, a, a systemic challenge by each individual part of the system doing its bit without realising or without really appreciating the deep interconnections that we need to consider to ensure that the system as a whole moves. To reflect a little bit on systems thinking from that paradigm of return of invest and, and shareholder value creation, how easy or hard is it to implement that kind of thinking, especially in, in that paradigm where it's still about performance, individual performance and attribution of this is the, the value we create when you spend more of your money and invest it towards something which will not necessarily increase your own performance right away, but maybe increase the resilience of the overall system. How is that seen, for example, by the shareholder? What's the financial take on, on this kind of systems thinking? It's something that is evolving quite quickly at the moment, both from a, a, a purpose-driven lens, if you like, so the needs and the recognition that the role of business and the role of finance is not necessarily just about the corporation or just about the, the institution. It's also about serving broader stakeholders. So on one hand, I think we've got a, a purpose-led conversation that's broadening to a wider set of stakeholders. For me, what's really intriguing is also the lens of systemic risk is also promoting these broader conversations, as well as coming from a place of purpose and responsibility to society more broadly. We're also seeing an enlightened self-interest that is also beginning to emerge, which I think somewhat presents a, a way forward that we may not have really fully had before, because by pricing the risk effectively and understanding the systemic risk, then it provides a, an opportunity to move forward, not only for doing good and being responsible, but actually because it's in your enlightened self-interest to manage the future risks today, because if not, then obviously they will they will crystallize at a future point that will still impact upon your shareholders. An example of that would be some of the work I was involved with at the Bank of England was introducing climate stress tests that start to extend the time horizon beyond the normal three to five years that we might look at actually out to 2050. 
and therefore raising awareness of these future financial risks that need action today. I'm really sort of encouraged by some of the work that is now happening through this systems lens. For example, in the UK, there's a a stewardship code that's been introduced, and the stewardship code actually places responsibility on market participants to be thinking about systemic risks, including climate change. We're also seeing really interesting papers coming out from asset managers talking about system-positive companies and the way that companies can also respond to the systemic risk. I've read and, and listened to to the speech, which you also refer to from Marcani, Breaking the Tragedy of the Horizon. One of the things he says there is, in other words, once climate change becomes uh, a defining issue for financial stability, it may already be too late. So moving away from this paradigm of, of shortening the future, I don't know if you've heard of it or, or read it. There's also this book called The Ministry of the Future, The National Banks, And also the finance sector play in that book quite an important role in changing the overall paradigm because they create a, a carbon extraction currency basically to go long on the future. Where do we see something really happening uh, where you could point to and say these are the first steps already? Yeah, I, I love the concept of ministry of the future. How do we take collective action today to manage a future risk? One of the things that uh, we've recently launched, actually, just from, from a Willis Towers Watson perspective, is something called the Climate Transition Index. And effectively, the index looks at a, a well below two degree scenario, so a Paris scenario, and then puts a, a valuation on different companies around the world as if the future had already happened. And I think that's a really interesting concept because then you can start to see what the valuations of a company would be on the back of a Paris agreement. So it almost brings the future into today. And you can start allocating capital as if the future had already happened. And it's by bringing the future into today that we can start to manifest the future that we want. And so I think I'm you know, really excited by that as a tool for progressive asset owners and investors who want to create the future because they can start allocating capital as if that future was already here. It's, it's this process of almost having a vision of where you want to go, but acting as if that future has already happened that brings the future to us today. The sort of the pricing of assets as, as if a two degree scenario had already happened enables you to actually bring that future into existence. There's also other ways of the financial sector now taking action to become a steward of a net zero transition. And this concept of stewardship is really important to me. Another way that we're working with the insurance industry is to create a product where they can still offer access to insurance to high carbon emitting industries that we do need to transition, but obviously need to also work with them to enable that transition to happen. So something called the Climate Transition Pathway Project that we have enables insurers still to offer you know, access to their services and their products, but on the back of robust transition plans from the corporate sector. We're seeing a range of innovative products that enable the, the future to be priced today and therefore manifesting uh, a Paris-aligned economy and then also ways by which 
the financial sector can not only sort of divest out of the problem, but also effectively lean in and engage with firms and encourage the behaviours that are needed to get the transition plans from the real economy uh, so that we can accelerate the path to, to a net zero economy. In some ways, it's really exciting to be seeing a whole wave of innovation happen that can sort of help to manage the future today. Um, and I think finance, in some ways, has a, has a real pivotal role to play to to bring forward that innovation to both price risk effectively, and then also to steward the economy. Could could you just briefly draw a little bit th that risk landscape which is ahead? So, what are the the very concrete risks which are out there caused by climate change and and extractive economies? The physical risks would be. For example, quite tragic events that we've seen, you know, particularly in recent years, so losses due to wildfire, property losses, business interruption, also from storms and floods. So something that the insurance industry has been on the front line of for, for many years, but obviously those physical losses can show up in terms of financial losses, not just for insurers, but for banks and also for national governments. So we're seeing a significant increase in, in those. When I was at the Bank of England, I think we noted that the volume of insured losses increased something like a factor of five over the last 20 years or so. So obviously as climate becomes more significant than those losses are only going to increase. Those are the sort of the physical risks. Then we have the transition risks. So the idea of this is, you know, for example, if you are a coal company and the world is decarbonizing quickly, maybe that the coal-fired power plants might only be used for five years and not 20 years. So the cash flows from that business will be affected. Since that we're really going through a such a structural transformation, it cuts across many different industries. So it could also be a, a fast food company facing into the shift towards plant-based diets. So customer sentiment shifts or technology changes. So really transition risk can show up in, in many different areas uh, across the whole economy. And that's one of the things that we're really focused on. And the Climate Transition Index is properly pricing those, those impacts so we can allocate capital efficiently. And then the other area that is continuing, I think, to develop is this concept of liability. So effectively... As central banks, for example, talk about climate not just as a as a financial risk, but really as a systemic risk, one that's far-reaching and also one that is, whilst it is uncertain, it's certainly foreseeable. We know that it's coming, these physical risks are increasing, and we know that the transition to a net zero economy is also on this way. Then if responsible action hasn't been taken to manage those risks today in the knowledge that they are foreseeable and far-reaching, then what liabilities might flow from that? And obviously, we're seeing lots of court, court cases around the world that are starting to bring climate action into, into the courts. So I think liability is also uh, a really important area for For people listening to to be aware of, and that that's very in line to to the conversations we had already this season about the wildfires in Europe, the flooding events in Germany, and also what what I found really interesting was that Eva Carlson, the the CEO of Houdini, said something in in that regard of transitional risks with these big paradigm shifts and people probably revisiting their take on consumerism or, or how they want to include stewardship 
for everything around themselves. There's also this exponential risk of change of customer behavior and attitudes and values. So basically, some of the business models can be threatened within a very short time frame because of that really disruptive change of attitudes within the group of consumers. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think we're seeing that happen exponentially, as you say, Tom, which both presents risks, but also there's also huge opportunities here. I think often we, we can focus a lot on the risks for those uh, companies and institutions around the world that really get on the front foot and, and see the new markets that are opening up, then this also creates a whole new set of opportunities for firms to embrace. Again, that's one of the reasons why I'm personally quite passionate by trying to bring that transparency to financial markets to see who are the winners and losers from the transition that is happening, because that will create this virtual circle of those that are responding well to the transition to be then getting easier access to capital and therefore having more investments to grow the businesses that we need that are going to shape the future. And then that in turn then creates the space for policymakers to be more ambitious as well. So this notion of how we can sort of work together and get financial markets to be working in sync with policy and responding to these changes in customer sentiment really creates this virtual cycle of of therefore accelerating and bringing forward and pulling forward the transition and and enabling the future to become the present and and revisiting that that idea of stewardship one of the aspects i found really interesting preparing and looking on what uh, willis towers watson has on their website was how to include that in the structuring of payment schemes and incentive schemes for board members the, the ones who are at the helm and and deciding where the company is heading what's your take on that especially when we differentiate a little bit between incentives so more forward looking and then rewards retrospectively looking at, at what were the decisions made by the leadership of the company one of the, the reasons actually i was sort of most excited to join with this task was the, the people aspects as well as the capital and the risk and the more sort of technical size that we've already spoken about and i think What we're learning is is the importance really of seeing people as the enablers and the advocates, if you like, the stewards of the climate strategy. You can put out the, all the strategy that you might like, but the, the culture of the firm is going to be so important in actually seeing that through. And I think there's different dimensions to it. There's both the sort of incentives and metrics conversation and the importance of then embedding that into executive remuneration. We've recently put out actually a report all around uh, climate metrics and executive remuneration that people can find on our, on our website and maybe I'll put it into the, the talk notes. So enabling companies to actually take those tangible steps to embed it into the incentive structure. I think though there's also this really important need to move beyond metrics and think about mindset and, and therefore thinking about the culture that firms need, the ability to create an environment that inspires and empowers and gives agency to everybody in the firm to be part of this huge structural transformation that we're experiencing. So, for example, the role of employee listening to make sure that the views of particularly the younger generation who, who we know quite rightly, like many of us are really passionate about this, are, are heard at the board level and having that connectivity between the senior leaders in the firm and also the incredible enthusiasm and appetite and insight and ideas that are emerging from the, the emerging talents. 
So I think that connectivity and the importance of, of listening is also as important as the harder embedding of metrics as well. And that's what I, uh, what came to my mind when we were talking about stewardship is I, I live in Germany and there's this strong part of the industry with small to mid-sized company, which are still owned by families. Some of these seem to have that long-term kind of thinking, thinking more in stewardship and heritage, not being too focused on, on the short term. So I wondered when it comes to mindset, What is it in particular in an individual's mindset? So what kind of culture besides that listening is it that can enable us and nurture these qualities so, so we actually live stewardship on a daily basis? I had the pleasure of exploring some of these things in the climate leadership course, uh, the great pleasure of being part of. And I think for me, there is this sort of notion of compassionate leadership that comes through. And I think that's only growing in importance as we get to a place where the urgency of the climate challenge becomes ever more pressing. But the need to be compassionate and to listen first and to understand other people's views and try to bring people with you. So I think that that notion of compassion is really important. I think there's also something around being able to work across borders. So this concept of system leadership. One of my colleagues at Willis Towers Watson talks about the need for T-shaped leaders So leaders that have a discipline in one area, which is the vertical of the T, but also the horizontal bar is actually, they also have an awareness of lots of different subjects or have worked across both the public and the private sector or bring together a range of experiences. I think uh, to some extent, we're seeing the world of climate science merge with the world of finance, merge with the world of economics. So the ability to cross disciplines and to cross silos I think is also important. A big part of my life has been developing my own yoga practice and also sort of mindfulness practice. My partner's a mindfulness teacher, so that certainly helps to uh, try and keep me centered from time to time. Uh, I think there's something uh, in mindfulness around this sort of idea of it being a, a sort of foundational psychological capacity that enables us to think a little bit more in systems to sort of step back and, and maybe when times are urgent we actually need to slow down and see the bigger picture and therefore take intentional action that can lead to the outcomes that that we want so i do think there's strangely there's there's as times get more urgent as i say i think there's also in some ways an opportunity to slow down and i know it can seem it can seem very counterintuitive to do that but i certainly found uh, it can be helpful to do with all your experience people you know at stanford having gone through the mba knowing finance inside out in in regard of these qualities like being mindful being aware being compassionate What would you say towards the skeptics out there, especially uh, in more conservative organizations, what's in it for them when they would cultivate these kind of qualities as leaders? I think to some extent, people also need to find their own path to their own leadership as well. I certainly f find that just thinking about how the financial sector has transformed in terms of climate now being in the mainstream. I think we could have had this conversation seven or eight years ago, and you could have well asked me this question of, well, you know, may maybe people would view a lot of people in finance as skeptics, and yet we're at this situation where 
we do have uh, a mainstreaming of this within financial services. So I think there is an element of of awareness that really helps to take people uh, along this journey that um, when you start to really understand some of the the climate science that underpins the context in which we're operating, then I think what can be seen as a sceptical nature can sometimes transform on the back of a deeper understanding. So I, I quite like to think that everybody's coming from a place where they're doing the best they can with the model of the world that they have and therefore the need to work with people and actually understand, develop a deeper understanding of the context that we're operating in. There's also a question, I guess, for us all to think about the legacy that we want to leave and find our own connection to that. Obviously, with the the arrival of my son Hugo, it sort of triggers a new set of thinking in terms of the legacy that I would be excited to leave. So to some extent, people have to find their own way and their own path into this. And therefore, I think that does, again, speak to the, the need for compassion and to meet people where they are. Uh, as opposed to necessarily tell people what to do. I tend to find that doesn't particularly work that effectively. And it, it's really interesting because that's that's one of those common threads which runs throughout that children and the thought of, of our children and, and the children of our children and future generations to come, that, that seems to be one of the very strong motives for nurturing compassion. These are the ones who are dearest to us. And when we think of their Uh, lives and, and how their lives might uh, be affected from our own actions, then this might be a, a lovely entry point of, of co cultivating the, this kind of compassion. And what what I find quite intriguing was that this, this breaking the tragedy of the horizon aspect, there's also compassion in this, not being compassionate only with people around us or or in the global village across the globe, but actually being compassionate with people across time. So being compassionate with future generations to come as well. Yeah, and I think that's 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 really a really nice way of looking at it, Tom. And I, and I think this sort of again, this notion of sort of managing the future today, because we've never we've never had to face the challenge that we have to face today, which is effectively taking collective action today to manage this future financial risk. And that's really why, for me, the risk angle is, is interesting because it comes with a set of responsibilities that perhaps we might not otherwise have if you're coming from a place of just wanting to do good. And so the notion that this actually is you know, a set of risks that will manifest in the future but requires action today to address starts to um, give a different angle by, by which we can think about, therefore, our responsibilities to become a steward. Because uh, these are not just uh, nice, nice to have environmental factors. These are actually real financial risks that will manifest and crystallize and need action today. And therefore, there's a responsibility there to to become a steward of the transition. There's also um, just a great sense of of people now working together and unlocking innovation to address the challenge. And and again, I think so much of this does start with with this awareness i've had conversations where i've sort of gone into it's gone into meetings on climate change where perhaps at the start of the meeting people were paying polite attention but really thinking this was nothing to do with them but as you talk through the nature of the risk being a, a financial risk the nature of the the need for action today to manage the future then 
so sometimes those meetings have almost turned 180 degrees and by the end of the meeting people are asking me you know why why are we not doing more on this and and it's because there's been this sort of shift in worldview and a shift in understanding i think seeing that happen through the lens again of sort of responsibility to address risk as well as obviously the importance of purpose and stewardship from a more corporate social responsibility perspective i think just gives a different angle by which we can have the conversation particularly with boards around the country so we're briefing boards on climate and we tend to think about those briefings in these three areas of awareness presenting the context in which we're operating and both the risks and opportunities that that presents and then alignment so helping board members actually align on what their climate ambition is and set an intention of how they want to respond and then agency and that's really helping them to empower everybody in the organization from the top down and from the bottom up to take the action they need to put their strategy into practice and I think that sort of process of awareness alignment and intention and then agency is finding that to be a a powerful framework by which we can um, accelerate action that we need. Looking at future generations, because you you teach at times at Said School in Oxford, and you probably see the next generation to come within companies and starting their own companies. What's giving you hope, or what kind of spark do you see in them? Yeah, it's a real uh, real highlight of mine was the, going down the central banking and the financial regulatory routes. It also doing some teaching and staying close to my, my entrepreneurial reads. So I've had the pleasure of uh, working a little bit with the Skoll Centre of Social Entrepreneurship in Oxford and also the Entrepreneurship Centre there from time to time. I think we're clearly seeing the recognition of the, the role that young entrepreneurs can play in solving the problem. I think that sense of agency is really exciting and some of the businesses from ways to do sort of mass replantation of forests and all sorts of innovative approaches to sort of clean energy and waste recycling and unlocking that innovation, I think, is massively exciting. The ability for finance to then support those entrepreneurs and to provide the capital they need to grow the businesses of the future, I suppose, is one of the reasons why I've sort of gone down the path that I have as a, as a former entrepreneur. It's important that we create the systems that can empower uh, those entrepreneurs to create the businesses of the future. And then really just to nurture that sense of agency. That is so important that at least it's been really powerful in my own experience, having some time in sort of Silicon Valley to get that sense of belief that we all have the, the opportunity to create something that could really change the world and to give that a go and just to see how that is, is manifesting itself. Many of the companies that are now really significant are not the ones that existed even 10 years ago. And I think in by 2030 we'll see the great businesses of the future being the ones that are solving some of these most challenging problems uh, and why should they not be created by younger people who are, are coming through and seeing the opportunities and have the courage to act it's really a really meaningful part of my life i guess that i also have that sort of mentoring aspect and from my own experience we had this really interesting conversation Tommy in the in the climate leadership program around this concept of not just sort of social entrepreneurship but system entrepreneurship 
So could we also create uh, not only uh, a, a generation of people who are creating the ventures that we need and the companies that we need to solve the world's problems, but could we also create a, a generation of system entrepreneurs that are going into finance and going into government and going into uh, many different areas of the economy and actually helping to helping for us to to create the new systems that we need as well as the companies that will deliver the solutions so i think for me that's uh that's an interesting area to play with this concept of system entrepreneurship and stewardship i feel that we are starting to see the the first sparks of that attitude within companies like Uh, Tesla giving away proprietary technology as a creative commons or Houdini who who introduced technology and just spread it across the market saying whoever wants to use this use this because we prefer much more that you take this to the paces and we create a much bigger impact than trying to protect our own intellectual property and not making any kind of big changes. Yeah, I think that's right and I think actually that can often be a way of of scaling a very big business as well. So I think we're also seeing that happen, for example, in terms of platform-based businesses, the idea of, of setting up communities that work together to solve problems is a slightly different way of thinking about business than necessarily coming up with the solutions yourselves. The way that technology is enabling us to collaborate on shared problems, to come up with shared solutions through communities working together is also a way that we can accelerate the progress we need and to bring the future to today. And then maybe as a last question, coming back towards agency, I talked to Satish Kumar about this and he said, well, we will need both. We will need top down and we will need bottom up. It will be both together. Otherwise, we will not be able to tackle this challenge. I wonder what is your recommendation to people in early leadership roles, young people starting within or just being a couple of years within the company, having that feeling of who am I and, and what is it that I can change? What's your recommendation in, in regard of being a steward already right now, whatever position you're in? I think there's something around patience, that, that to have sort of patience and also confidence. That I know sometimes in that position, it can be quite challenging. I know that in my sort of early days of um, working in the central banking community, looking to try and bring climate into the mainstream, there was days that it felt like I was not making the progress that I wanted to. At one point, actually, I was uh, just working two days a week and, and thinking actually leaving, being um, part of that community. But then actually opportunities arose where I got the mandate to work on this and lots of great things happened after that. So so I guess where I'm trying to come from is there is this need sort of for, for both patience and confidence to continue the hard work that you're doing, even if perhaps it's not having the immediate results that you might want, by working in some of the places where change is needed the most, that you can have the most impact, but sometimes that is also the hardest place to be. So there's a sort of sense of both patience and confidence because the world is changing rapidly now, and I think there's opportunities to become those stewards and have much more impact going forward. And then I think also just, you know, forming the community of like-minded people around you that can also help to give that sort of confidence that the world is changing and that there's ways that we can all work together to make the differences that we want. 
That that sounds to me like a beautiful wrap up. So, Matt, th thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Tom. Real pleasure to be here, and uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. I'm really glad to have Matt as a guest, as it feels uplifting for me how much change he's recognizing already within his industry. It is remarkable how Matt approaches stewardship for our planet within finance by integrating mindfulness, compassion and systemic thinking. And especially that so many boards recognize the need to manage the future already today by moving beyond metrics and by focusing on mindsets to drive a transition towards sustainability. We know how the risk landscape ahead looks like. Physical, transitional and liability risks will manifest if we do not reach a corridor of the Paris Agreement. So we can and all need to find ways to become stewards in our daily actions and within our surrounding. To put this into practice, I invite you this week to contemplate together with me on the questions which are derived from Willis Towers Watson's board briefing framework on sustainability. Awareness. What are the risks and opportunities for myself and my organization while we are transitioning to a sustainable economy. Alignment of intention. What is my intention? What are the intentions of others? And how do we align these? Agency. How can I empower myself and everybody around me to take the action we need? In the upcoming episode, we will be welcoming Satish Kumar. Satish is one of the greatest peace activists of our time. He's founder of Schumacher College in Devon renowned International Center for Ecological Studies and editor emeritus of Resurgence and Ecologist magazine, which he has been editing for more than 40 years. Together with Satish, we will explore from which source we can act, how to stay sane when stepping into action, and how to be truly compassionate. If you like to start a dialogue or support the Inner Green Deal, please reach out to us via the show notes. Thank you for being with us on the journey to an inner green deal. I mean, there is this sort of notion of compassionate leadership that comes through. And I think that's only growing in importance as we get to a place where the urgency of the climate challenge becomes ever more pressing. But the need to be compassionate and to listen first and to understand other people's views and try to bring people with you.